Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. And I am so excited to have my friend Peter Russell on today. He is a leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He's the author of a dozen books, including The Global Brain, Waking Up in Time, and From Science to God. And we're going to talk about his new book, Just Out, Letting Go of Nothing. Peter studied theoretical physics, experimental psychology, and computer science at the University of Cambridge and meditation in Eastern philosophy in India. He's pioneered the introduction of personal growth programs to corporations in the 1980s. And his mission is to distill the essential wisdom of human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions and to disseminate their teaching on self-liberation in contemporary and compelling ways. You can find out more by going to peterrussell.com. Pete, welcome to uh, our show here. Lovely to be with you, Michael. Good to I see you. I know, it's been a while. Borders have kept us apart. Good. So your new book, Letting Go of Nothing. Yes. Relax your mind and discover the wonder of your true nature. So letting go usually assumes we're, let, we're holding on to something. So let's start with what we're holding on to. What are the kinds of things that are really weighing us down with the weight of holding on and how are they impacting our life and our experience of life? Right. I think we hold on to so many things, probably most of the time without realizing it. You know, we hold on to our views of things, of other people, what's right, what we should do, what other people should do. We hold on to our belief systems. We hold on to our possessions, you know, things we have we think are important. I mean, I just had to let go of 14 boxes of books. So that was an interesting exercise. I realized how much I was holding on to. I'm never going to look at them again, but I was holding on. We hold on to lots of our things and we get attached to our possessions. I mean, you know, superficial one, even our car, what sort of car we drive. Some people get attached to that. How our friends see us, how we want them to see us. We get, we get attached to almost anything in our life we can actually become attached to in some way or another. So there's always something holding on. And it's basically we're holding on because we we think that's going to make us happy. And so anything anything where we've invested our happiness in that thing or object or relationship or idea or whatever it is or emotion or feeling, wherever we've invested ourselves in it, then we tend to hold on to that as something important. Yeah, we even hold on to the idea that something out there is actually going to make me happy. Yes, yes. All kinds of ideas. That's the fundamental idea behind it all. Yes, we hold on to that definitely. That's so deeply conditioned into us, so deeply conditioned, yes. Right from the moment we're born, more or less. So the name of your book, though, Letting Go of Nothing. Right, exactly. Explain what you mean by that. It's a slight play on words. It's got several meanings. The main meaning, though, is a slight play on words. It's letting go of no thing. So, you know, 
I thought I was letting go of the books. I wasn't letting go of the books. What I was letting go of was my attachment. And that is just a mindset. It's just a view I have. Behind all of this, we're not letting go of the things we think we're letting go of. What we're letting go of is the lens through which we see the world. We're seeing the world through a certain lens. So with my books, for example, the lens I was seeing it through, someday I may move back to England. And when I do, it'd be nice to have my books there with me. It's like, that was the lens I was seeing it through. And that conditions then, you know, how I saw things. So it's letting go of that lens and just seeing, hang on, you know, it's just a different way of seeing things. But the point is, the lens is not is not a thing we experience. I mean, it's something we, we can come to understand, but we experience the objects in the world, we experience our thoughts, we experience our feelings. So we could say even thoughts and feelings are things we experience, but we don't actually experience the mindset, the lens through which we're seeing things. So it's letting go of that. It's almost changing. It's a change of mind, really. Letting go is a change of mind. So we're not letting go of things. That's why I call it letting go of no thing, which is letting go of the way we are seeing things. Yeah. So, so that's where the title comes from. But of course, the subtler meanings to it. I mean, some, you know, a lot, a lot of the ideas when we when we see through them, we often say, oh, you know, oh, it was nothing. It was nothing. When I let go of it, we look back and say, oh, it was nothing. And of course, there's another sense in what we're letting go to is that space of no thingness in our own mind, that sort of that quiet place of no thingness in our minds. So there's several meanings to it. But the basic thing is we're not letting go of the things. We're letting go of the mindset. So it's basically about a change of mind. For most of us, it appears that life is happening to us like the events outside ourselves are causing our unhappiness, causing our suffering, that it's coming from the outside rather than happening through us. So how do we shift that so we can work with our inner experiences instead of continually having our focus on the outer world and what it's doing to us? I think by beginning just to become more aware of what's going on inside us, I think that's the important thing. I mean, the world out there is happening. And then we make our own perception of it, our own interpretation of it, how we see it, and we, whether we see it as something that's going to be really useful to us or really threatening. What I suggest is we come back to actually look at what is happening inside us. Look at the body. How is the body responding? We can begin to get more, more clarity on ourselves. I think most of the time we're on what I call autopilot. But, you know, this happens, we respond this way. This happens, we respond this way. This happens, we start thinking about this. But it's like we're being, we're not actually taking control of ourselves. We think we are, but really we're just on autopilot. So part of it is coming back to being aware of what is actually going on inside us. And that's the way we can begin to step back. So, and this is what I look at in the book, is you know, looking, looking, at, looking at what the body, what's happening in the body, looking at our stories, what are we telling ourselves? So as we do that, we can begin to take the world that's happening and then begin to make choices about how we see it. Are we going to follow this particular line of thinking or not? So it's really about taking back, you could say taking back responsibility for our own reactions to things. When you say letting go, though, it sounds like another doing, another thing to do. Even like you said, taking control of our lives. It's a, yeah. There's a doingness that's inherent in that. But you're looking at 
taking the doing out of letting go. How do we let go as an undoing? I guess that's the question. Yes, yes. This is what I mean, most of us, you know, we, we treat letting go as something we have to do. You know, people say, oh, I, I try to let go of this. I just couldn't do it. Or people say, you know, you just need to let go. It's like, that's all you need to do is just let go. The problem is we're already doing too much. We're doing the holding on. I like to take the example, if you're holding a small rock in the air, in your hand, just holding a small rock, if you, go, if you let go of it, the first thing you need to do is become aware of the holding, the, you know, how the muscles are, the tension, the muscles, I mean, very briefly, but you notice how the muscles are holding on, and then you can let them relax, and the letting go happens. And I think it's the same with the mind. What we need to do is become aware of the actual holding on. First of all, you know, how it feels in the mind when we're holding on to something, you know, there's often a sense of maybe a sense of tightness or slight discomfort or something. There's a feeling in the holding on. So to start becoming aware of it. And then what I suggest to people is, is actually doing the opposite of what we tend to do. If, we, if there's, an un, say there's an uncomfortable experience, I'm feeling upset about something. Because it's uncomfortable, what we tend to do is push it to the back of our mind so that we can get on with life. So if, if I'm not experiencing this, it's getting in my way, so I'll forget about it. I'll think about something else, whatever. But we know if we push it to the back of our minds, it's still there. And in a way, it still controls us unconsciously. Mm-hmm. I think it was Carl Jung who said, what you resist persists, mm-hmm. meaning what you don't allow into your consciousness stays there and it's still controlling you. The first thing I suggest is actually letting in the experience, which is the opposite of what we tend to do, actually letting it in. So if you're feeling upset about something, go to first of all, go to the body. The body, we tend to go to the head so easily in our culture. We go to the head, go to the body. There's so much information there and often wisdom. So, you know, feeling upset, what's happening in the body? And there may be the obvious things of feeling a slight sort of tension here or something, but be curious. What else is going on? Oh, I see. There's, you know, oh, there's this feeling in my legs. Oh, I hadn't noticed that. Oh, there's this, this sense in my stomach. Oh, yes. And like, be curious. What else is going on? And just really sort of, in a way, I'm talking about befriending the discomfort. It may sound a strange thing to do, but it's almost like allowing yourself to relax into the discomfort and feel it and notice what is there. And as we do that, we're sort of, we're no longer resisting it. It begins to soften. And as we do that and stop the resisting or pushing it away, the letting go begins to happen on its own. So we're sort of, we're gently softening the holding on. And so I say, and after letting it in, I say, don't try to change it. If you, if, you know, if you, if you notice something in your body, be with it. So that's the second stage is letting it be, just let it in, allow it to be there and just allow it to be there. And that allowing it to be in a way allows this sort of, I call, sometimes call it a metabolism, a sort of psychic metabolism, that it begins to dissolve itself. It's fascinating. The other side of it, we can go to the mind as well, because with any, any emotion, any emotion at all, there's always a mental component to it, by which I mean some story, some narrative, something we're telling ourselves about what's right, what's wrong, what should have happened, what we want to happen, etc. Allow that in too. We probably, we probably know the narrative. If somebody upset us, it's like, oh, they did this wrong. And, you know, we stop there. Go deeper into it, you know, go deeper into the story. What, what are you telling yourself? What, what should they have done? What was I expecting them to do? And then sort of beginning to look even deeper, you know, behind that, 
how might they have been feeling? You know, what was going on? Did they just have a bad night? Is, is there something going wrong in their relationship? Is it something from the past? You know, what were they expecting me? Did I do something to upset them? To, to again, let the story in more fully to see what's going on. And again, not trying to change it, just allowing it to be. And you begin to see, oh, maybe there's another side to this. And as we do that, the holding on again begins to soften. Let's say the letting go happens. So we're not doing letting go so much as we are creating the right mental conditions in which the letting go, which is a completely natural process, we're comp the right mental conditions for that letting go just to begin to happen on its own. Yeah, beautiful. So there's a, a releasing, there's an invitation, and there's kind of a, an embracing. And one of the things, because I also teach meditation, working with people is this, I'm letting go in order to, which is a real trap, I think, that people get into, because yeah. if you're letting go in order to, you're in the same moment, acknowledging its existence as something. Yes, letting go is just valuable in itself. When I said earlier, when we're holding on, there's usually some sense of, I just call it general uptightness somewhere in our body, in our mind, in our being. That's the very thing when we hold on, you know, it's like holding on to a rock. There's, there's a tension there. We need to keep focused, do something to keep the holding on happening. We're just allowing it to release. We let go in order to get rid of something. And that's a trap that's saying in the same breath, it's right. existence. So if you're being present, you're calling it in at the same time you're pushing it away. Right, yeah. And yes, and what I was going to add to that is, I say we do it, we do it for its, itself. And what we feel when we let go is we just feel easier. So we're not letting go in order to get somewhere else, but just we were creating tension. And it's just when we let go, there's a relaxation that happens. And that is its own benefit, not about getting somewhere else or anywhere else, just... The benefit of letting go is we actually feel better for it. We feel more relaxed. And that in itself is its own reward. We're already putting far too much effort into holding on to what we think somebody should have done or not do or what, you know, what's right or what we, you know, or whatever it is, it takes energy and effort to hold on. Mm -hmm. And when we, when we begin to let go, we, we begin to notice that difference. It's like, ah, we begin to notice, you know, what we were doing and what it was taking to hold on to something. So one of the things that we don't even know that we hold on to, but we're very much in the grasp of is our own identity, that sense of I am this kind of person. Talk about the how that holding on, how much suffering it creates to hold on to. You know, I think all sufferings are this uh, in the world at some point are because of this sense of being separate. I'm a separate identity living in a world of objects. Talk about how this letting go of nothing can help us to really expand the, the walls of our self-imposed prison of identity. Yeah. Identification. Yeah. 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 No, this is a really crucial point. You know, if you, if you ask somebody, you know, who are you, you know, you meet someone, who are you? The, where we immediately go to as well, you know, first thing is I'm Peter, I'm Peter Russell. It's like, that's my strongest identity. We probably have, that's the first identity we get as a baby, you know, you are Peter. It's like, okay, okay, I am Peter. That's the first thing, you know, you are a boy. Okay, I'm a, I'm a male, you know, then it builds up from there. I'm, you know, I'm British, I'm this, I'm sort of, and then there are all the qualities I have. 
my history, you know, I have that, you mentioned in the introduction, you know, I have degrees in this and did this. That's part of who I am. You know, you were just in the introduction, you were just reinforcing that identity of who I am. And other people, you know, receive that and that's, they think that's who I am. And I think that's who Michael is. And so there's all this stuff we build up. Almost anything we do creates this sense of who we are. So it's part of our history. It's how we are, how we relate, how we see things, our belief, whatever it is, I'm a liberal or a Republican, whatever it is, we just build up this whole sense of identity. And, you know, there's a certain value in that we do need as an organism, you know, to build up here I am, this organism functioning in the world. That's a very useful sense of identity. And that's what, you know, psychologists call a healthy ego, you know, a sense of self-worth that helps us form meaningful relationships in the world. You know, this sense of identity, it's very, very shaky, you know, because it's built on phenomena in the world. So if I have an identity with being an author, and I'm talking to you, and you said, you know, that last book you wrote, you know, really, you know, I don't think it was very good. It was a bit off here. I start feeling upset because you threatened my identity, and then I need to bolster it, and I come back and say, what do you know? You know, you haven't even done something like this. It's like, so we spend a lot of energy just reinforcing, bolstering, defending our identity, because when it's built upon, you know, what's happening in the world, the world is changing. So any change in the world can be a potential threat. And so we're a lot of the time we're on guard against this. We're on guard against having our identity challenged or threatened. So it's a it's a huge cost. You know, sometimes in sort of meditation groups or spiritual groups, they ask that question, you know, who are you? It came from, you know, Ramana Maharshi in India 100 years ago, his question, who am I? But it isn't meant as a question of like, who are you, Peter Russell? It's not meant like that. It's actually asking a much deeper question. It's like, what does the word I refer to? And I actually think the question is better put as what am I, not who. Who, the word who takes us out into all these things we identify with. What it's pointing to is becoming aware of this deeper sense of presence, that, that sense of I-ness that's always there. It's not that it's not the I am Peter Russell, blah, 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 blah. It's just I am period. Not I am anything, but just I am period. And it's pointing to that, to become aware of this sense of inner being, I just call it personal presence, which is always there. And it's always the same. I mean, my personal identity, that's changed. You know, when I was a kid, I wasn't, I didn't write books. I didn't have that identity and my beliefs have changed and everything. But that sense of I am has never changed. It's the same as it was yesterday, last year, when I was a teenager. It was always that sense of me, meanness. And that's like, that's the personal core to our being, which is always there. And so what it's pointing to is becoming aware of just that deep sense of, I don't want to say not even I am, but just that deep sense of amness and just being. The more we become aware of that, there's a stability to it. It's like, ah, oh, yes, here I am. And so all the you know vacillations of the world no longer shake me so much. I say so much because I am not, just to be clear, I am not a fully enlightened awake being. I'm somebody who's on my own journey of awakening. And But when I am more in touch with that, I just feel more stable. I'm more in myself. I'm more at peace in myself. I'm not out there looking for what's going to make me happy. I think this is something all the great spiritual traditions are pointed to in one way or another, to get to know thyself, your true self, your essence, whatever they want to call it, just, but getting to know that sense of being that's always there is not normally noticed because it's not a thing. It's, it's like it's not another thing. If I look inside myself, you know, 
people talk about the ego. If I look inside myself for an ego, I don't find some separate part of me called an ego. I don't find that separate self. I find there's this sense of me that's always there. And there's a lot of egocentric thoughts maybe and feelings that come and go. But there's no there's no thing called the ego. There's just me and getting lost in my egocentric thoughts at times. I just had a flashback happen sometimes to the 60s when I was in living in Amsterdam and we had the happenings, you know, and I, I was thinking of, of this, I am that I am, that's, it's a, it's a happening. It's, it's really a, a verb unfolding, I guess you could say. And, yeah. and that sense of amness also brings us more into presence, more into the present moment, because it's, yeah, because it's a movement. I was thinking also in what when you were speaking about if I put Peter or Michael on an MRI and, and we sent you through the MRI, there wouldn't be any Michael or Peter there. There would there would be energy, there would be rhythm, there would be structure. And that was taking me kind of like I wanted to go back a little bit because we just jumped over the importance of embodiment in the idea of letting in and letting go. And I love uh, Bessel van der Kloek's work with The Body Keeps the Score, how much everything is recorded, being recorded, not just individual, but familial, cultural, ancestral, all of that moving through us all the time. I'm interested in hearing more about the importance of embodiment in the process of letting go. Yes, yes. As I said earlier, always I always come back to the body first. In my, you know, when I'm working with people, it's like, okay, what's going on in your body? For a lot of people, that's you know, it's it's an unusual thing to do because we go in to try to sort it out, we apply our mind. And so, you know, the embodiment of this is is really how how do how do we live this? How do we live this? How do we come from this this space of a deeper knowing, a deeper sense of being? how do we live this? And you know, people sometimes think, oh, it's just about stepping back from the world. It's not. For me, it's about engaging in the world in a whole different way. We're still totally engaged in the world. But instead of engaging in the world that's coming from what I call the ego mind, our self-centered thinking about what's right, what's wrong, and all the things we're attached to, we're engaging in the world, what sometimes is called spontaneous right action. It's like, we're not so much trying to work it out. It's like, there's a deeper caring. I mean, I talk about, you know, there's a peace that comes with this, but there's also a lovingness. It's what I call lovingness, but it's not love as we normally talk about it, which is, you know, has some object. It's just a quality of lovingness. And that comes with us into the world. So we, we, we come to the world, not in a way of, I've got to protect myself and, you know, handle this and bolster my identity, whatever it is. We just come into the world, back into the world with a sense of, openness there's an openness of heart and so we can begin to respond to the situations i would say much more effectively and efficiently than if we just responded from the ego mind so we can respond in a wiser more caring more compassionate way so that i mean that's how i i see the embodiment it's like living this living this in our life it, it's really important because sometimes when people you know you talk about accepting the present moment and sometimes people say oh you know does that mean I've got to accept, you know, injustice in the world and this and that, all these things that are going wrong? No, it doesn't mean that at all. 
accepting your experience means accepting what is happening. So if I'm feeling upset at something, notice it, notice it, accept the present experience. And then from that, decide how to come out and change the world. But I think the more in touch with ourselves, the better we're able to actually live that in our lives. Mm, so much in what you said. I think what you just described, uh, Pete, is the, the, what the modern mystic is. You know, the old thought of a mystic, someone who secludes themselves away from, from the culture, from the society, and does the inner work. But the modern mystic, I think, is the person who uses everything, particularly challenges, difficulties, rough times, to using that to, as a fundamental way of awakening to be able to be with that and explore that and the interiority that comes with that inner exploration and the space that it creates to be more and more able to be with the movement of life. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, to come back to uh, examples, I'm, I'm feeling upset about something. In that, you know, letting in and letting be, I'm discovering things about myself. I'm discovering how my body responds to situations, but also looking at the story, the narrative, I can begin to see, oh, yes, that's what I get caught up in. Oh, and I see where that comes from. Oh, that comes from way back in my history. I can begin to become more aware of myself. So when something happens that's causing me some irritation or discomfort it's a real opportunity to actually look within about what's going on i think it's a continual process of self-discovery awakening learning what trips us up and as we do that we're gradually becoming more and more free from it or more and more able to recognize it when it happens and then how to let go of it or how to respond to it so yes and there's times when we need to go into stillness just met you know meditation you know, the traditional mystic going into his cave and meditating for three years is not about that. But I think for me, each day, just having a period of time where I actually just be quiet, not trying to do anything, not going anywhere, not even trying to walk out, sort out my emotions, but just letting go of the thinking and just allowing, allowing the thinking mind to just settle down and become quiet. It's just like, yes, I just need to come home from time to time just to reconnect with that. It's also letting go of tension that happens when I just come home, there's a release, I feel more at ease. And I can go out into the world, as I say, in a more stable basis. So, so the, there's a role for the traditional mystic in life, which is that there's a role for coming back and just meditating and being still. But the, you know, the rest of the time, there's real value in looking at what's going on and learning from that. That's how I think the awakening really happens. I love Otto Schamri's work and the idea of the emergent future, getting still enough to hear the emergent future. I think that's really making an impact, particularly in some of the organizational work that's happening, but it takes us to the question of time, the world of time. And you talk about it in your book about the falling from grace of the present moment into the world of time. And for the most part, our understanding of time is linear it's logos, the, the beginning, the present, and the future. But there's a whole nother world of time. In fact, you wrote a book about that. <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> Waking up in time. <laughs> Waking up in time, exactly. Yeah. Meaning to that as well, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, but go on. Sorry. Well, the question really is this relationship of time and how does that 
relate to our ability, our imagination, our creativity, yeah. our ability to be tuned in, say, on what the emergent future is calling for. I mean, if you take climate change right now, we're so in a culture that suppresses you know, these immediate issues that are wanting to be dealt with. And then there's the overwhelm of how can little me deal with anything about so big as climate change? But it's all related to our relationship to time. It is, yes, yes. There's two parallel things going on here. In one sense, there is only the present moment. If we come back to our experience, everything I experience is now. In my memories, our experiences now, my thoughts about the future, whatever's going to happen, long-term futures, the history, future of the human race, that's all happening now to me. So that's what you know. some teachers say, there is only now. There is only the present moment. There is only now. So there's a truth to that. Everything is happening in the now. And within that experience of now, we have, we construct a timeline of past and future. When we say we're not in the now, when people say, oh, you're not being present, what we mean is our attention mm -hmm. is not on our experience in the present moment. Our attention is distracted, well, not necessarily distracted, maybe deliberately going there, or maybe planning something, working something out. Our attention is on the past or future. So it's, our, it's where our attention goes. All our thinking, if, if just about every thought you have, is actually taking you out of the present moment, out of your present experience. It's taking your attention out of your present experience into the past or the future, what might happen, what could happen. And that's when we begin to lose ourselves. And so when I talk about falling from grace, we, we fall out of the present moment into the world of time, into the world of past and future, which is you know where we do our thinking. That's what it's about. But a lot of the time, we, we actually pondering problems which don't actually exist and things. So we spend a lot of time wasting time, if you like, with our attention going off in, into things like that. that that's the distinction. There's, so there's two, there's two senses in which we're talking about time. When, what I find is, you know, when I drop back into the present moment, when, when, I, when I see, so, you know, I'm off on some thought story about something or other, and I recognize that and just let it go, and drop back more into my experience in the present, then I have a greater awareness of what's really bubbling there. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, I thought I was so busy thinking, this is what I've got to do next, and I'm tensions there, and I, I just pause that and step back. It's like, okay, what I really need to be looking at right now is this. And it could be something in myself, or it could be, this is something I need to be focusing my attention on, something that's much more important. So in terms of I don't quite know what you know how he uses the term emergent future, but what I see in myself is that I I get more in touch with what is actually important for me and how to do things. So it's like yeah, it's the importance of things becomes clearer and what what I really should be focusing my energy and attention on. So you know you mentioned climate change, the the issue or one of the issues, probably the big issue in the big picture. You know, we, we can worry about it and get fearful about it and what should happen. Isn't it awful? You know, we can blame all the people that are doing things which aren't helping and what, what government should do or industry could do or whatever. In the end, it's like I always come back to what, what is our own personal sphere of influence? It's like it's one thing to 
blame other people or get or be telling other people what they should do. And we may even get a certain satisfaction out of this. They're wrong. I'm right. This is what other people should be doing. I, I'm okay. We get a little smug about that at times. But, you know, what can I do in my sphere of influence? And that may be, you know, it may be talking to people. It may be writing something, whatever, but also in how we live our own lives. But it's coming back to our personal, our personal responsibility and ability to change things within our own lives rather than getting caught up in all the stories we're telling ourselves about it. Yeah, I think what, what he's talking about in, in Theory U is the, in the emergent future is that intensity of bringing ourselves into the presence and into the stillness that you're talking about. And that way, our ability to hear what's needed and wanted is higher, but also our ability for creative and intuitive multi-sensory kind of experiences beyond the five senses can actually emerge in a more creative way. I think that's, that's kind yeah. of what, he, what, he's, what, what he's talking about there. Yeah, and I, I would definitely yeah, go along with that. I think in the quieter we become, the more open we are to our inner voice. I think we all have incredible inner wisdom, but it gets overshadowed by all our thinking and worrying. We don't notice it. And our intuitions. I mean, I, I take the view that there's so much other information that is there, which I'm not picking up through the senses. If my mind is, you know, busy around thinking about this, worrying about this, I'm not going to notice it. It's like if you're in a room and there's, you know, people chatting, the radio's playing and this is going on, you're not going to notice the subtle things that are happening in the room or even what's happening in your own mind. So it's over, it's just overwhelming. And I think the thinking mind can be overwhelming. So we need to step back to come back to that place within ourselves, what I call coming home, to actually see what's going on. Just remind me, one of my favorite quotes is from Alan Watts, who said, you know, way back 60 years ago now, good old Alan Watts, he's amazing how popular he's becoming these days. He said, you have to stop thinking at times in order to know what to think. You know, one of the things you didn't talk about in the book, but I think along this time thing that we're talking about is really important the information over the last 10 or 15 years that's been coming out about trauma and the impact of trauma and how trauma is really frozen history, frozen past in our body. And that that's not only personal, it's familial, it's cultural, it's ancestral, and it has a huge impact. And when I first heard Thomas Hubel say, you know, we live in a sea of trauma and I just went, oh my God, that is, to me, that is such a linchpin for if we can find out how to release that frozen past that is unintegrated and undigested from early attachment trauma or event trauma, that would open up a huge opportunity for us to be more present and more able to release ourselves from the bondage of our own identity. Have you been thinking about that or following some of the things? I've been, yes, I've been actually following another person, Gabor Mate. Yes, yes, I've done some he, things with Gabor, yeah. He lives up in your area of the world. When, it, when he said it really, really hit me. It's like, trauma is not what happened to you. Yes. It's how you responded to it. If what you did was you block it, you shut down, whatever it is, you locked it away, that's when it begins to affect us, control us, because, it, because it's locked away. We don't give it attention. 
So and that's really good news because if it was the trauma and it was locked away, we wouldn't have any access. But because it's the story we made up about the trauma, yeah. you know, oh, that means I'm unlovable. Oh, that means I'm not a good person. I'm stupid. Whatever all of those things, we actually have access through presence. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, a lot of his work is, and I think Thomas Hubel as well, is just actually becoming aware of what's going on, how it's controlling us. I think with all this, awareness is the key, bringing awareness. Because if if we lock it away, if we don't, or it begins to, we don't see how it's controlling us. I know Gabor talks a lot about, you know, addiction. He works with addicts a lot. And how, you know, what he's saying is, that's, you know, that's the best they can do. That's that's the way they found to cope with their trauma. And we shouldn't blame them for being drug addicts. We should say, okay, you know, what they're doing is they're seeking some way to get through life. If we can begin to work and, and look at what's actually happening, look at the trauma. I know he has tremendous success with these sorts of people just by actually going in and saying, okay, let's look at what's going on. Talk about it. Talk about what happened to you as a child. But, you know, or anything, just even minor things in life. It's not just that major thing because I had an alcoholic father who beat me up and then did this or whatever it was. I mean, that's that's the major trauma that some people have. I look at my own life as things which have really conditioned me to make me who I am in ways that I would say are not that healthy. I think as, as I've got older, I've begun to see them more. And the more I begin to see them, the more I can... It's not getting rid of them. It's not getting rid of them. It's like being being free of the control they have on me. So I, I think that's important. And that comes from, again, just being willing to look inside ourselves. And, you know, as I say, the first, first place is not to go to the mind. We so easily go to the mind. Okay, what was I thinking? What was happening? What was that? What was going on in my life? Go to the body. Or say, go to the body first. See what, see what the body is telling you. And often it may lead you into new understandings. It may lead you into new new areas of the mind you hadn't thought of. So it may actually give you new aspects to investigate. You use the term in your book, the letting go of nothing book that you just published, the term natural mind. Do you want to speak a little bit to what you mean by natural mind? Yes. I don't mean anything highfalutin, like some amazing thing that you discover. I just mean how we are when we're not worrying about things not planning our mind isn't conditioned by stuff that's going whatever it is we're not trying to get somewhere we're not trying to change things it's how the mind is when actually when it's unperturbed so it's just the natural unperturbed state of mind as if you like you know the analogy is often the water the ocean you know the ocean has waves on it there could be a storm but then it can also just be quiet. When it's quiet, there's a placidness to it. So it's not changing anything, but it's how it's how the water is when it's not whipped up by wind. And it's the same with the mind. How the mind is when it's not whipped up by all our thinking and stuff and worry and anxiety. So I call it the natural, unperturbed state of mind. And that state of mind is one of inherent contentness i would say that's the most general word is contentness we could call it peace happiness joy they're all expressions of it i sometimes just call it okayness it's like i'm feeling okay mm -hmm. i'm just feeling okay so that's the natural state of mind is a state of okayness contentment mm -hmm. and then it gets perturbed because something happens we need to deal with we need to think about it or 99 times out of 10 sorry nine times out of 10 nine times out of 100 we actually 
create some disturbance. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen. I, uh, you know, I wonder what Michael's going to say next. I should actually, you know, work out. <laughs> Prepare, yeah, right. Losing my, I'm using losing that natural state of content. I'm creating discontent. Yes. And I think this is what goes wrong in a lot of time with us. We, we're looking for contentment. As you said earlier, what we're looking for is to be happy. Behind everything we do, we're looking to actually feel better, to feel more content, to feel happier. And we're so busy worrying about what's going what's to do that for us. We're creating just how can a mind that's discontent be content? Mm-hmm. So you know, in order to be more content, it's about returning to natural mind, which is about noticing the things which are causing us discontent and just choosing not to follow them. So for me, natural mind is just the natural state of mind when it's unperturbed by all the stuff we get stuck in. So it's nothing, nothing weird. It's something we all know, you know, something when we classic thing, you're sitting looking at a beautiful sunset and you take a deep breath and go, ah, isn't this lovely? And you think the worries of the day drop away and you stop thinking about what's going to eat for dinner just go, ah, isn't this lovely? You're just dropping back into natural mind. Interesting, the image I had, you know, we both lived on the ocean, is sitting my place on the Sunshine Coast and full moon and a beautiful night with the trees and the perfect reflection on the water of the mountains, the moon, the trees and, and the ocean. And then the wind comes up and all of a sudden there's no reflection there. Right. And that's exactly the image I was feeling when you were talking about it, how the, the disturbances, that motion comes in, but how beautiful it is when it's just a perfect reflection of what is right. in, the, in the ocean. And, that, and that's a beautiful, it's actually quite an accurate metaphor, I think, the whole thing of the, the still water. Because, you know, going a little deeper, you know, when we say, you know, that sense of being, that sense of amnesty, when you really look deep at what is there, it's just actually that sense of being aware. Mm-hmm. You know, what we call I, that I is just this sense of being aware of the world. It's like me teaching say, you know, I, what I am ultimately is awareness, is, be, is being aware. And that's the placid state, just, that's just awareness. And then the awareness gets rippled by the winds of what's happening, something happens, all the thoughts that come in, and you begin to see that still state of awareness is, is rippling, it, it's becoming active. So the awareness is becoming active. And as it gets activated, it then takes on all these different things, concerns, worries, whatever it is we're perceiving. So it's really like it is the wind of the wind of thought and things stirring up awareness. I'm thinking of something that Bruce Lipton said, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's that the, and I'm not sure if I get the brain science right, but the reptilian brain transfers something like 40 million data packets per second, where the frontal cortex or the newer brain only transmits 40 data packets per second. So the old historical reptilian brain sends a million times more data than when we're actually in a state of presence. So there's a a need to come to something. This word presencing, another thing that Otto actually talks about, the presencing, there's a, a bringing ourselves, we go away, we bring ourselves back into it. One of the things, in addition to that, is this thing about negativity bias, that more than two thirds of our thoughts are negative, 
which of course is, is an ancestral thing of watching for the saber-toothed tiger or looking out, for, you know, how am I going to survive? With those odds, what are your thoughts about transcending that to um, bring ourselves back into this state of presence? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. I think most people, if we notice that our thoughts are, you know, predominantly that there's that negative bias. And you say it's, it's a natural thing, but we so easily go there. If, if there is, you know, if we notice something in the bushes, you know, we need to be aware, is that a tiger? You know, we need to have a negative thing rather than could that possibly be a pixie or something? <laughs> we, we need that. But as I say, first of all, we we create it unnecessarily so much our, our imagination goes off on tracks and the negative bias comes in what if that were to happen what if that were to happen sometimes it's positive but so so much of the time it's actually negative but to pick up on something you're saying i don't i don't think we can make ourselves present it's that same thing because we're doing something and that and we get involved and that actually takes us out of the present so i don't think we we actually become present. I, the way I phrase it, we already are present, but we get present to our thoughts or whatever it is. When we let go of that, the present moment reveals itself. It's like we don't have to do something to be present. That's, that's, we don't do something to be present. But when we stop the doing that's taking us away from the present moment, the present reveals itself. So when, you know, when you let go of some thought story you were having, it's like, ah, and oh, I noticed the bird song or the traffic noise, or this is going on in my body. The present reveals itself. That's that's the important thing. We don't we don't have to focus our attention. Okay, you, know, you can do that in certain meditation techniques. Yet, okay, I shall be aware of the breath. I shall bring my attention to the present. You can certainly do that. But what I find is just by letting go of the thinking, present is there. And so it, it like it, it re-emerges into your awareness. Mm -hmm. I always say presence is always here. Mostly we're not. <laughs> That's another way. But I would say mostly our attention is. <laughs> mostly our attention is not right. I'm thinking about the three ways you talk about of being present. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and expand on that? Yes. Yes. Um, the first way is a sort of the way that people say, you know, Living for the present, not for the future. You know, I'm going to, I can enjoy what's happening now. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. That's the sort of the first level at which people say, you know, and I hear that a lot. You know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm living in the present moment. I'm living in the present moment. I'm, you know, <laughs> and that, that, you know, that, that's common. That's what people sometimes misunderstand it to be. Then the second way of being present is really what we're talking about, which is actually noticing noticing our experience in the present moment and say so, you know the present reveals itself so it's being present to our experience and then the third way that i look at is actually it's a subtle level which we don't normally do but i think is really important is being present to being present mm -hmm. by which i mean noticing how it actually feels to be present to savor the moment so if i'm being present in, a, in the second sense of just, okay, here I am, here's the bird song, here's this, here's, here's my breath, whatever it is. What we tend to miss is how that actually feels, which is also part of the present moment. And I sometimes, you know, I noticed this sometimes when I was used to do mindfulness meditation, I'd be so, so engaged in the meditation, I'd be being present, etc. I'd miss 
the benefits of that. And the benefits are, it feels good. The quiet mind is a very satisfying state of mind. It feels nice. And so being present to how it feels to be present, which is being present to a deeper level of the present moment. So it's savoring it. It's like, I sometimes use the analogy of, you know, you get into a warm bath, which is lovely. And then, you know, you, you start having thoughts about, you know, this and that, and you're soaking there. But what about experiencing how it feels to be in the warm bath, soaking in it? So the third level of being present is actually allowing yourself to soak in how it feels to savor the experience of being present. And, you know, the being present is still going on, but you're like, ah, oh, yes. So you're allowing that deeper quality that's already there. You're allowing that into your awareness. And that just makes it, you know, it makes it a joy to be present. I was going to say, it's almost not like uh, you just said, bring it into your awareness. It's like there's a place where there's awareness. You, you are awareness. It's like a, a sense of the eye seems to be gone. It's just, um, and then my refrigerator starts or, or a thought comes or something. Yes, that's, that's another way of putting it. It's just the, in that being present, you begin to notice this is going at a deeper level still. It's just the awareness of being aware. That's the that quality we're talking about, the meanness of having, that being aware of noticing that being aware, which is always in the present, it's being being present to that being aware the aware i sometimes use the verb not awareness but the awareing awareing yeah yeah being, being present to being aware in all this and and again it's just a state of it's a lovely delicious state of just being aware of being aware because there's you've let go of all that's just all that is disturbing it you've let go of the disturbance there's no longer the wind churning things up yeah i liked your chapter on um free won't because we have a lot of attention particularly down in the united states you all have a lot of attention on free will right now oh, yes, I, yes. I i love the free won't can you share a little bit about your yes. thoughts <laughs> yes, yes. i mean firstly free won't obviously is the distinction to free will mm -hmm. And there's a whole philosophical debate, which I got engaged in as a teenager, and I can still get into, do we or do we not have free will? It's like, okay, it's a fascinating question. But you're right, in terms of, you know, uh, individualized, we think of freedom as the freedom to do something, the freedom to go where I want, to say what I want, to live where I want, to marry who I want, all these things, the freedom to do things. What I'm talking about with free won't is actually freedom from, and it's freedom from the machinations of the ego mind, all the stories it gets into. And what I've noticed is when I, when I noticed I'm getting caught up in some narrative, some stories, some imagining what might happen, I actually have the choice not to follow that thought. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I call it free won't. It's like, I won't go there. I notice a thought that's going to take me off into some distraction and maybe cause some, creating some emotions or lead me to do something I might later regret. I sort of nip it in the bud, nip it in the bud and just like, okay, I make the choice. And I think this is where there's real freedom. The real freedom is not 
the free will to do what we want. The real freedom we have is the freedom to choose not to follow a certain thought. Yeah. Not to, oh, so I actually call it free, the freedom to choose not to choose. Because most of our thinking is about choosing to do something. Do I do this? Do I do that? Where free won't is, is actually the freedom not to follow the thought. So we're freeing ourselves from that, what, worrying what we should choose. So it's the freedom not to choose. And when we do that, we again, we just sink back more towards this place we've been talking about, this, whatever we want to call it, the coming home, the natural mind, whatever. The peace that passeth all understanding. Yeah. Another issue when I'm thinking of the states right now, but uh, really here in Canada where people are terminally nice, uh, I feel it also, <laughs> this vicious cycle of, of, um, of um, it's a lack of kindness. It's a withholding our, kind, our loving kindness. Uh, and it, it seems to be exponential and, and growing. And the things that people say to each other and um, what's going on there? Pete, what, talk about that and how you see presence and um, letting go of nothing, being able to help bring back kindness and connection. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is really, really important. I think the way I approach it is to step back a bit. It goes to something again we were touching on earlier. It's like deep down, we're all the same. And in fact, the word kind means kin. It comes from kin. Right. And deep down, we're all of the same kin, not of the same family, except in the, in the huge, larger sense of the human family, but we're all of the same kind, by which I mean, deep down, all of us, basically, we want to be content. We want to be happy. We don't want to be made to suffer. We don't want to be criticized, rejected. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We want to feel content. So deep down, we're all the same. And there's another sense in which deep down we're all the same is we're talking about that sense of I am. I think that sense of I am, which I know the deep down, because it has no personal qualities, is very similar to how you feel when you have that sense of I am. So I think deep down, we're very similar in that respect as well. So when we, when we look at other people like that, I mean, I know that you are this being which has this sense of deep sense of I-ness there, similar to mine. And you, like me, just want to be content, to be loved. You don't want to, you don't want to suffer. Mm. Now, what happens is you say something to me which comes from a beautiful, pure place. But because of my trauma or whatever it is, or I didn't have enough coffee or too much coffee, whatever it is, I take it as some slight attack. Mm. And then what can easily happen is I respond with just a very subtle form of attack. It may just be body language or rolling my eyes or something or keeping quiet, whatever it is, or it could be a more overt form of attack. Now you do feel attacked because I've deliberately done something to make you feel bad. Right. And then, you know, if you're not fully enlightened, you come back at me with some, you know. And so what happens is we get into this vicious circle of two people, both wanting to be loved, to be, you know, to feel okay, appreciated, digging the knife in a little deeper, just saying, I'm just going to hurt you a little bit, attack you a little bit, so that you realize the error of your ways and love me better. Right, right. Do people do that? It's hopeless. It's hopeless. So the being kind, the essence of being kind, is the recognition that deep 
down, we all want the same thing. So it's like, it's having the intent in any interaction, first of all, that you should feel good on this conversation. Whatever it is, I've got something to say to you. It could even be something critical, but how do I say this in such a way that you feel good, that you don't feel attacked, you don't feel rejected, that you feel loved? So it's having that as our intention. And you know, it just means being vigilant, ruling out, you know, I get triggered and I notice a slight attack thought coming up. Free won't comes in. Free won't, I won't go there. And just having the intention, how can I say this so that Michael actually feels loved and appreciated, whatever it is. It's basically the golden rule of every single spiritual tradition, which is, it's there in every tradition. It's like, basically put, treat others as you would like to be treated. And the way we would like to be treated is be cared for. We're very good at caring for each other's outer well-being. You know, if you're sick or something, I might say, oh, you know, can I get you some shopping? Can I do something? Can I make you a meal? You know, are you okay? We're good at that. This is caring for another person's inner well-being. So just like, I want you to feel what you want. I want you to feel loved and appreciated in whatever mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is the essence of kindness. And if we all did that, the world would be a very different place. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, my younger friend, Peter Russell, I am so grateful for you taking the time to uh, be on We Earth Radio today. And uh, thank you for the wonderful book, Letting Go of Nothing. Again, if you wanna find out more, you can go to peterrussell.com. And uh, just thanks for your many decades of pioneering work. It's great to be with you, Pete. Thank you. And lovely to be with you again. Thank you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.